Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, nature nerds, to another episode of You're Gonna Die Out There. I'm Megan. Sitting across from me is my co-host, Jen. Hello. We're really in the holiday season. Spirit. Yep. We, I, but you helped. You mm-hmm. helped. Had a party last night. You did. For my daughter's birthday. Mm-hmm. So. Which is not holiday related, but it is part of this holiday season. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all the Christmas decorations are up. Well, her birthday was last week. Right. We just did the family party. Yeah. And we, you know, it's a big family. It's fun. It's a good time. <laughs> it's a good time. It was a good time. And I like to do that thing where I wait until the last minute to have to go outside. I like to hang out in your air con. Oh, yeah. Right. I'm just like, hey, let me help you with anything inside the house. Because even if it's eight o'clock at night, it's still, still, it's still it's, hot. It's still it's warm. Muggy. You're still going to sweat. And then the downside of staying inside and enjoying the air con is that you get the last table at the party, which is directly across from the speakers, the very loud live band that has speakers, <laughs> always a live band. Can't be any other way. And I am like, why do I do this to myself? Why right? did I come out earlier? Well, no, I think they, that's like the special table. It is. For the uh, <laughs> the VIPs. That's right. Yep. So you can really feel the music, the vibration. Just in my whole body <laughs> uh, uh, speaking of songs we were just talking about how both of us are we have like holiday different music. yeah different, different holiday songs stuck in our head it's george michael is really he must be like in my dreams or something it's just constant non-stop non-stop i wake up that song immediately i think who is mine stevie wonder yeah mm-hmm. okay well that's a bit i mean, I mean it's know, a good I'm, that's I'm okay a good, with that yeah i feel like a good artist those are yeah. really poppy nice Right. Christmas songs like, yeah, this is, you know, this is the time to do it. We're one week out from Christmas, right? Yeah. By the time you guys you listen this. to this. Yeah. So, you know, you got to start feeling it. It's good times. Are you ready to feel something else, Jen? <laughs> uh, what are we talking about here? <laughs> so, some science news. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And, I, you know, I thought this was kind of interesting. It actually, I saw it on the Facebook because, you know, we're still old. So we're still on the Facebook. So do... Like, young people don't look at Facebook? I don't think so. Do young people look at Facebook, <laughs> Megan? <laughs> We've had too many incidents of, like, old things being said to each other. And then both of us looking at each other like, oh, That's God, it. this That's is it. it. It's <laughs> happening. We're in the time. We're tumbling down the hill. Oh, um, yeah, no, young people don't do Facebook. They don't do it. They, they do don't TikTok. do TikTok. Yeah, they do TikTok. They do. I don't even know if Snapchat is technically still like super popular. There's another thing that's. But TikTok, you got to like make a video. Ain't no one got time for that. How do you how do you keep up with that? That's a lot of pressure. It is. I mean, we have a TikTok. Do we have any videos on it? No, we just go and like stuff. I mean, we I'm saying we I mean, I yeah, just go like things. And I think actually some people have followed us. Like listeners have and followed us. Very on TikTok, disappointed. There's nothing happening there. So dis- well, mm-hmm. someday. Something's going to happen. It's going to be amazing. Yes. 2023. (sighs) I guess that's the other thing. It's time to start thinking about our New Year's resolutions. I mean, I just don't do them. (laughs) 
I do it, but I don't make them anymore. I think they're really fun because I love to set goals that I never <laughs> can, will, will achieve. So it's just fun to write it down. That's nice in another journal. Yeah, that has the first page filled out. It's and then it's just, it just that's it. And then like five years later, you go and you rip out those pages that you wrote in. And you're like, five oh, years this ago, this journal is still good. I can still use this. Let's start it over again. Right. And then you write your first page. Uh-huh. Yeah happening jump ahead five years oh yeah i have so many of those i have a box of those <laughs> journals anyway so yeah do you want to hear the science news yes absolutely um it really jumped out at me you know how i am yeah if i see something jumps out at me i'm like yes. oh that's a good science news the title is why was white dog poop so common before the 90s white dog poop white dog poop do you know what i'm talking about like if a dog poops uh-huh. and then it sits and it turns white uh-huh like real white Okay. Yeah. So it's like, why did that happen? Isn't it just if it sits out in the sun, like it's really dry? So I'll tell you, Jen. Okay. Uh, the little caption underneath is white dog poop has many causes, but one died out before the turn of the millennium. Oh, this is weird because I never thought about looking at dog poop. I guess I, the color. I would have yeah. said like, why is there no more white dog poop anywhere? <laughs> like I've never asked myself that. Well, I'm answering that question for you today. <laughs> okay. For those of you out there who have asked yourself yeah. that question, do you? it's your day. You can't sleep at night because this happening. is a question in yeah. your mind. Here we go. Okay. Uh, Jen, you've seen Step Brothers, right? Yes. Uh, so there's like a scene in Step Brothers where Will Ferrell is like sticking his tongue out to some dog poop. Uh-huh. I don't really remember that scene, but in this article, they reference it and they're like, I guess it was some kind of punishment like they were inflicting on each other. Yes. And uh, the article's like, Will Ferrell's tongue approaching white dog poop to the backing track of Tristan and Isolod by uh, Richard Wagner is a scene few will be able to forget watching Step Brothers. Like, that's such a hard sentence for me. There's um, a lot of things that happened in that movie. I yeah, kind of do remember that. A though. lot. I guess the image of white dog poop might be more familiar to some people of a certain generation, like us, like older people. Mm-hmm. But Older people? <laughs> older people. Because once upon a time, Jen, dog food was stuffed full of calcium-rich bone meal, oh. like meat and bone meal. So there's like a lot of calcium put into dog's food. Most of it was through bone meal. But there's a limit to how much dogs can process, right? Mm-hmm. Like anybody. Right. Um, and then it becomes unabsorbable. So they'll pass it. They just huh. you end up just pooping it out like you're okay. either okay. in your urine or in your poop or whatever. But you don't see the white, you know, like it's not coming out of the dog's butt, just fully white. Right. It what you has it has to dry in the sun. It has to dry in the sun, right? Yeah, and then yeah. you see it. But I guess over time, there's been a ton of research into dogs' food. Like some people now just like cook their own dogs. I knew this lady who would like cook chicken and rice for her dog only, yeah. like handmade home meals. That's people who have time. Yeah, this, she had a lot of time. Yeah. But, and then I guess there's some research saying at some point that a vegan diet was healthy for dogs. No. Which it's not. But yeah, all these different kinds of research have been going into how people make dry food. But the one thing that everybody kind of agreed on, you know, like not everyone's going to agree with the vegan thing or whatever, home making your meals. But everybody, all science has agreed that there's too many minerals in the dog food. So a lot of the formulas changed, you know, okay. and, it, and once like a popular brand changes its formula, everybody kind of follows suit. So there's been less of that bone meal put into dog's food now. So back in the 90s, when your dog would poop and it would dry out in the sun, it would turn white. But now, not so much. Not like so it's much. still a little bit, but not not a lot. I mean, I think about Saber's poop because we pick it up a lot. It's usually still brown. Like, even if it's dried out in the sun. Yeah. 
But you know, there was a time when I was, my dogs were having white poop, like in the, within the last couple of years. Were they eating bones of something? So I'm wondering, maybe. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe yeah. it was because I usually would give them like good food. Mm-hmm. Like you pay a lot for this dog food nowadays. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. the, in the article, it does say, what should I do if my pet starts excreting white dog poop? Uh, they say generally adult dogs should be able to control their blood calcium by absorbing what they need and pooping out the rest, as in the case of white dog poop. However, hypercalcemia, an excess of calcium, can occur and is toxic. So it's worth trying to keep dietary calcium levels to the appropriate amount and seek help from a veterinarian if your dog's poop is looking funky. Oh. So if it happens again, Jen, you might want to... So what would be the symptoms of calcif... What's the symptom? <laughs> <laughs> the hypercalcemia? Uh, hyper yes. Uh, I did, You know what? I didn't really look that part up. Why are you asking me these questions? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I want to know <clears throat> if my dog's, like, getting sick. Come on, Megan. Right. Yeah. Jeez. You know what? You can ask her. <laughs> Contact your veterinarian specialist for that. I mean, <laughs> but no, it could be that maybe maybe there were some parties and they got some extra bones. Probably. You know? that's, maybe that's what it was. That's, yeah. But in the future, if it happens again, you can like think about, oh, what I've been eating and yeah, have you changed right, your food right, or something right, like right, that. Right, 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 right. Anyway, (laughs) they go on to ask, can white dog poop be a worrying sign? Not to worry you further, Jen, but yes. Uh, Like humans, dogs experiencing liver and gallbladder problems may have pale stools as a result of not enough bilirubin being secreted into the digestive system. And you remember bilirubin from when you had your kid? I remember some bilirubin. Yeah, that stuff. That's why my kid was orange. (laughs) Yeah, yes. So screw that stuff. (laughs) Uh, In short, if your dog's normally healthy bowel movements become unusual, Mm -hmm. it's always better to get checked. Wow. So really, this is just a PSA PSA? for for like, go check your dog's poop. But after it's dried, you got to wait till it's dried. And then. Well, it's been the rainy season here. So yeah, they're all just mushed up. It's that's weird. That's super gross. Um, That's interesting. I never really thought about that. But now I'm like. That's yeah. Yeah. And mm. and for here in Guam, um, I'm just saying we don't get snow here. So that's <laughs> the closest <laughs> thing, maybe, if you see white dog poop in your yard. You're like, let it snow, let it snow. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Excellent. That is uh, my science news well, for today. It's a really short and random. That's <laughs> so good. It has zero to do with what I'm going to talk about. But that's, I guess that's probably better. The fact that you brought up some snow has a little bit to do with my oh. topic today. All but right. Yeah. Other than that, white dog poop. Sorry. Yellow snow. Is that where we're going? Nope. Not even yellow snow. Well, you know, who knows? So I really thought your story about the lady falling from the airplane for like six miles. Vesna. Vesna. Just like, yeah. do, do, do. like she wrote like a haiku while she was like, there were so many things you could do in the amount of time that she was falling. Yes. Like I could have like washed my dishes, vacuumed the rug. I could take a nap. Take a nap. Like she fell for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then not long after that, I was listening to Dateline. Oh. Because I told you guys, I'm on a, a You're kick. into it. I'm into it. And there was an episode they did about a girl who was getting her license. And so she was doing her test and she's in Montana. And so to do her test, she was only 17. She had to fly from different airports. Mm-hmm. And I thought about doing this as a story, but I was like, oh, Dateline already did it. And they're probably going to do it better than me. But anyway, it was really an interesting story. But she had to stop at different, like three or four different airports. So she had to land and take off from several different airports mm-hmm. on this path. And she got off her path 
And in case I want to tell the story later, I'm just going to leave it like that. But she was in Montana. She did crash her plane. She was okay. Oh, good. Magically. And she is okay. Yeah. You don't Um, know which way it's going to go with a Dateline episode. Yeah, totally. But it's always the wife or the husband. That's all I got to say. Yes. Always. Oh, yeah. They love doing that. So, yeah, Dateline. It's a very good story. Okay. I kind of love it. So it got me thinking about, she was on a small plane by herself. Mm Mm-hmm. And it got me thinking about all these small planes everywhere. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what in the U.S., what what state has the most crashes? Like, where are you more likely to be in a plane crash? Yeah. Like within what state? (laughs) Yeah. Florida was a big one, but more with the bigger airlines because of all the airline traffic. Right. But actually, when I looked at it, it's Alaska. Oh. Which kind of makes perfect sense. Okay. So I was like, well, let me let me dig into this a little more. Mm-hmm. So I did. Why are there so many crashes in Alaska, you ask? I see you asking with your I eyes. Am. I am. Well, flying is a part of Alaskan life, Megan. More than 80% of Alaskan communities are inaccessible mm-hmm. by the roads because they have to either go on a boat or it's too high up or it's, you know how it is. Yeah. We all kind of know how Alaska is, and it's huge. It's like if you put California, Texas, and Montana, it's that big. You know, it's a huge area. And a lot of people rely on airplanes to transport people and deliver mail or supplies. Mm -hmm. It's home to only 1% of the U.S. population, but it has 42% of the nation's fatal plane crashes that mostly involve commuter, air taxi, or charter flights. 42%. That's crazy. That's insane. It also, Alaska has one airplane for every 60 people in the state. And air travel accidents are so common that Alaskan personal injury lawyers advertise their services to aviation accident victims the same way an ambulance chasing attorneys do. It's like right when it happened. It's just right. They're right there. They're all over the place. There's a bunch of them. It's amazing. Yeah. So according to the Anchorage Daily News, at least 10 fatal plane crashes occurred in Alaska in 2019 alone. In 2018, they had nine fatal accidents. There were eight in 2017, 12 in 2016, 11 in 2015. And so the 12 in 2016 were about 5.4% of the national total. Wow. So it's a huge number just for that state where there's only 1% of the population. You know, like that's that's a big... When you look at the numbers of plane crashes involving just commuter, air, taxi, or charter flights, they're even higher and getting worse year by year. So a lot of people say if air travel is part of Alaskan life, then so are plane crashes. Like it's equal, right? You have more people traveling and more crashes. It, Mm -hmm. It equals out. But the experts say, no, that's not right, Megan. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) That many Alaskan air travel fatalities could be prevented. Many of their fatal airplane crashes follow the same pattern, I guess. So Alaskan Airlines is actually one of the world's 10 safest airlines. But charter flights to the smaller remote airports with marginal weather can be much more dangerous. Mm. And I don't know if you've heard of Ketchikan. I have. Okay. So when I was working um, for the wildlife refuge system, yeah, yeah, I got to this training. It's like a three-week become a refuge manager training. I think you told me. I remember you going uh-huh. to that because I was like, that's cool. It was it was pretty fun. And there was a girl there that worked at the Ketchikan, one of the wildlife refuges around there, grew that's up there, cool. lived there. And she was the coolest. Yeah. 
if I don't think she's listening, but I think she would. I should probably reach out and be like, you should listen to our podcast. She would love it. Anyway, they have this Ketchikan Volunteer Rescue Service, and the president is Jerry Kiffer. And he said, if I had to point to one thing, I would say the weather is the biggest contributing factor. Makes sense. Yes. There's another, uh, Valerie Jokella is an Alaska native who works with the Federal Aviation Administration and explained, Alaska is very challenging to fly in. There are mostly mountain ranges that generate their own weather. Mm which is just weird. Pilots need current information on weather patterns to fly safely, but many parts of Alaska, they lack the equipment to monitor weather. Only half of Alaska's publicly owned airports have weather reporting equipment required for pilots to take off and land by instrument. So they're just like, like some guys out on the runway putting his finger, licking his finger. (laughs) They they just have like a little flag that's blowing one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. They said the shortage is so bad, some of the small carriers install their own weather stations. Wow. Other carriers are so small, they can't afford that. Mm -hmm. And they can't afford to donate weather stations because each unit costs about $90,000. So a lot of the planes are operated by these small carriers or, you know, just like like the owner, private. Yeah. And so for this reason, the FAA actually exempted the state from some of this equipment that they requirements that would apply to the lower 48. (laughs) Wait a minute. Yeah. Come on, FAA. Because if they if they tried to regulate all of the small planes, like people would be stuck all over the place because they couldn't afford it. So they're in kind of a catch-22. So some of them, their their plane is like their car. Right. Yeah. And they, they wouldn't be able to get to work or get supplies if they couldn't take their plane. And then they can't take their plane safely without a weather station, but, but nobody they can't can afford it. And so yes. the FAA doesn't require it. This is the craziest. Yeah, this is a crazy catch-22, Jen. Yes. For example, the Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast Systems, or ADS-B, mm-hmm. prevents plane-to-plane collisions, but it's not required. <laughs> so, like, this thing will help you not run into other planes, but never mind. No worries. It's cool. You know what? Just look out your window. Mm-hmm. It's you'll I'm sure you'll hear them coming. Midair collisions occur in Alaska and they are fatal most of the time. The National Transportation Security Board or NTB, sorry, NTSB mm-hmm. suggests the FAA <laughs> require ADSB in a, in their higher traffic areas. Uh-huh. But the technology can cost them thousands that they yeah. don't have. And to make it worse, most of the areas in Alaska don't even have the ground stations needed for it to work. So they can communicate with other oh, planes. Oh, right. Because you would so, like, need like little yeah, spots along exactly. the way. Right, right, right. So it's like, I'm sure people are like, why am I going to spend all this money on this, you know, ADSB system when it's not even going to work? It's Russian roulette. Like, it, 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 you know what I mean? With right. planes. Right. Like, it, like eh, we'll see. Yeah. So, <laughs> and they said, you know, because it's the air travel is highly subsidized mm-hmm. by state and federal governments, there's no to up to now till this is from 2021. So I don't know if anything's happened in the last year, but I didn't see anything. No one's stepping up to put the money into it required to make it safer. Fail. Fail. Exactly. And I was like, you know, I thought that I would read about this and be like, this used to happen, but now it's much better. But it's not. It's just getting worse. People are like, it doesn't, we need these planes. It doesn't matter. Right. Like, essentially, it sounds like to me that the priority is that we got to get places. We have to move things. We don't really care so much about the safety issues that might come up because those cost too much. It costs to deal with. 
I feel like it's just a matter of money. Right. That's it. For them to have the proper safety. So today we're asking you. (laughs) (laughs) A little history. Yeah. The first flight in Alaska occurred in Fairbanks in 1913. Oh. That's kind of, that's going way back. That's fun. And in the air travel in interior Alaska was like coming up happening in the early 1920s but anchorage became their main you know port yeah i guess or what do they call hub yes the hub (laughs) yeah the first aircraft to fly in the anchorage area was a boeing seaplane and it had been shipped to anchorage in pieces aboard an alaskan alaska steamship it's kind of cool it was owned by an anchorage world war one aviator named co hammertree (laughs) Hold on a minute. <laughs> what? C.O. Hammertree, right? And he mm. reassembled it, and he flew it in uh, in April 1922. Okay. That's pretty pretty cool. They also, the first commercial service in Alaska began with the Wien, W-I-E-N, when? I can't even, when, in my brain is not comprehending that for some reason. When Air Alaska in 1927. Cool. Um, it expanded in the 1930s with the Pacific Alaska Airways and some other that you won't know, so I won't read it all to you unless you're like a real aviation Jen, nerd. I might know all of them, okay? <laughs> but anyway, there's all these things, and then it finally became Alaska Airlines in 1944. Yay! So yeah, it goes back a ways. And I think before, a long time ago, people used canoes and boats and yeah. you know basically didn't get supplies i mean Sleds. they were just it was all subsistence yeah yep but i think out. now more people live there too mm-hmm. and there's just you know people go there for fishing expeditions or hunting or whatever it's a high demand there is for some stuff in relation to that population size for sure yes yeah that's interesting now i'm going to talk about the deadliest crashes on record and these are bigger planes okay most of them and I just want to say that it's all these stories are all really sad. Yeah. And okay. a lot of people died. So I don't want it to sound like as I talk about this that I think it's fun or neat or anything because it's yes. not. No. It's just an interesting history. You know, how I guess how they've tried to regulate things over the years mm-hmm. or how they've tried to change things and that it's still an issue. It's still ongoing. Anyway. Got it. Deadliest Alaska plane crashes on record. I have six. Are you ready? I'm I'm ready. So it says that um, these accidents, this list is based just on the number of fatalities Mm -hmm. as the top six. And although the crashes have big numbers, most Alaska plane crashes involve small bush planes carrying only one or two passengers, which is Mm. true. And we're going to talk about some of those after this. September 4th, 1971. We were not even a twinkle in our parents' eyes yet. There were 111 fatalities on the Alaska Air Flight 1866. It's known as the deadliest in Alaskan history. According to the official, what I said earlier, the National Transportation Safety Board, the crash was caused by misleading navigational information because 1971 is what I'm saying. Makes sense. They had faulty info and the pilot initiated a premature descent of this Boeing 727 toward the Juneau International Airport, slamming the aircraft into the mountains. Which was 22 miles. It's the Chilkat Mountains in Haynesboro, which is 22 miles west of Juneau. The accident occurred, like they said, a typical day in Juneau. The weather, but the weather was a little too foggy to fly rescue workers to the crash site. Oh no! So National Guardsmen had to hike up the mountain and go see. And the thing is, this is a really bad one because I guess they had been out 
hunting moose and they had all that and as part of the cargo and one of the first lieutenants with the 910th combat engineer company of the alaska army national guard that had gone up there to do like hiked up to do the first assessment he said there was some gruesome stuff up there oh no on top of the victims bodies there were 600 pounds of moose meat scattered around oh no no yeah yeah, just no, no good. No good. I didn't, I mean, it's, I'm just reading what it says. Yeah. I'm not trying to make this worse. He did, yeah. they did say the remains of the victims were unrecognizable mm. and mixed with moose meat in Mm-mm. body bags. Oh. I know. Like, maybe just leave it. I don't know. No, you need to bring them back to the families. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, like, oh, girl. All right. So let's go to the next one. <laughs> November 22nd, 1952. Mount Gannett C-124 crash. There were 52 fatalities, zero survivors. Mm. This one was carrying 52 airmen, and it departed McCord Air Force Base in Washington, headed to Elmdorf Field in Anchorage, Alaska. I guess it encountered bad weather, and they didn't have a good visual reference. And you know what? What are we? 1952. There was no GIS, guys. Yeah. So they're literally looking at a map following rivers. And when they can't see, they can't see. So the pilot was forced to navigate MacGyver style, they say, using only altitude, radio beacon, and a stopwatch. And this was a cargo plane. They said it never arrived. Its final communication um, was a distress call received by a passing airline, passenger craft. There was really bad weather for a couple of days. So the search and rescue efforts were not there, not Not able to happen. They say 32 military aircraft searched the landscape and four Coast Guard vessels searched the Prince William Sound before bits of wreckage were spotted on the side of Mount Gannett, which is a peak in Alaska's Chugach Mountains, mm. which is 40 miles from that Elmdorf field where they were supposed to land. Mm. There was a ton of snow. There was avalanches triggered by the crash. So they just the recovery efforts were just cut yeah. short completely. And the families were informed that there would be no remains. Oh, wow. They wouldn't be able to get to the remains. And that's like not something they could do in the spring. Or this is, when did it happen again? It happened in uh, November. Okay. Yeah. So this is a crazy story because for 60 years, Mm -hmm. the plane and its passengers and the cargo just has slowly slid to the bottom of the mountain. And they were lost on this colony glacier. In 2012, members of this uh, military training mission, they were called Operation Colony Glacier. Mm -hmm. They started to, they pulled together some military units, including the Alaska National Guard and the 11th Airborne Division, or called Arctic Angels, to try to recover the remains of the people before they go all the way. Because it was like they were heading down uh, to this Lake George which is, I guess, by this north flowing glacier. So mm. eventually it'd be just like, no way you could do yeah, it. Yeah. So they kind of saw this as, we got to do it now. They say that they're, that group, Operation Col- uh, Colony Glacier, fully embodies the I will never leave a fallen comrade oath on the Army Soldier's Creed. Mm. So, so far they have recovered 40 of the 52 service members' remains. Oh, wow. Yeah. I just think that's really cool. So they've been able to give them back to their families so they can bury them. Yeah. Yeah. That was a... I think that's important. It is. You want you want to know where they are. Right. Yeah. I, I, I always... That always gets me in any story where somebody's lost a loved one, whether it was in war or 
by some like really terrible circumstance or they disappeared. Mm-hmm. Ugh, just too much. Yeah. Anyway, no, next one. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something. I was waiting. No. Nah. Okay. So November 27, 1970. This was Capital International Airway Flight C2C3. It was um, 47 fatalities, but 182 survivors. And 49 were seriously injured. This was a large, this was a big flight. This was a Douglas DC-8. It stopped to refuel in Anchorage during a military airlift command or MAC contract flight from McCord Air Force Base in Tacoma, Washington to Cameron Bay in Vietnam. Oh. So they say there was an icy airstrip and near, near freezing drizzle resulted from this bad takeoff. And the plane overran the runway. Ooh. It bounced along the ground, crashed through wooden fence, and hit this instrument landing system structure, bounced out of a 12-foot drainage ditch, and then caught fire. Jesus. That is insane. Yeah. So 47 of the 229 passengers died in the mm-hmm. blaze. And then, you know, the rest were, they lived. But yeah, they say a lot of the a lot of accidents and I had this and I don't know if I put it in here somewhere, but most of them happen during landing or takeoff. Mm. Most crashes. That's like the pretty active part of the flight in in any flight. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Landing and takeoff. You're always like, oh, I hope we I hope we make it this time. Let's just just do this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. December 2nd, 1968. There was the when consolidated airlines flight 55. There were 39 fatalities, no survivors. It was going from Anchorage to Dillingham and experienced extreme to severe turbulence, which makes me just know that sheared off the plane's entire right wing, part of the left wing and a portion of the tail. Witnesses on the ground reported a cloud of black smoke and a trail of fire behind the plane before it spiraled uncontrollably into a frozen bay. Uh, The temperature that day of the crash was 11 degrees below freezing with winds plummeting the chill factor to a to 65 below yeah so that was just it was bad bad weather 65 below is not a conceivable number no no just terrible uh march 12 we're on number two march 12 1948 1948 this was a northwest airlines flight 4422 and it had 30 fatalities zero survivors it was ferrying crew members of the tanker SS Sunset home from the U.S. to Shanghai. After a refueling stop in Anchorage, the plane continued on to LaGuardia Airport in New York City. Instead of following the route they were supposed to around Mount Samford, the plane made a straight shot toward it, which, yeah, so they crashed into the mountainside in the middle Mm. of the night. Mm. After the initial impact, the aircraft slid 3,000 feet down the face of the mountain. Unfortunately... It was covered by snowstorms, and it mm. remained buried in a glacier for 50 years. No. Because this was going to, from, uh, remember I said they were going home from the U.S. to Shanghai? Mm. So there were some people who spread rumors that there was Chinese treasure somehow on this. What? And so there were all these expeditions over the years to find the wreckage, but no one ever found it. They found bits of the plane in 1997 and, you know, Confirmed it as part of flight 4422 in 19... Like, a couple years later, they were like, yeah, that's it. The same year, a mummified left hand was recovered from the glacier. Oh, no. Yeah. In 2007, the hand's fingerprints were identified as 
Francis Joseph Van Zant, a 36-year-old merchant marine from Roanoke, Virginia. The other 29 victims of the plane crash have not been recovered. Right. And I'm kind of like, well, neither was that guy. Just his hand. Just his hand. Which is, that's a lot. Uh, Yeah. It's creepy. It is creepy. But I guess, you know, I guess you know where they're at. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like you're like, he's there. Yeah. On that mountain. I don't know. If that makes anybody feel any better. Sure. You'd rather have them back so you could bury them. And then not know or not know we're there. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than. Yes. So last one, September 22nd, 1995. This was an Alaska Boeing E3 Century. There were 24 fatalities. It was, I guess, a nice evening when they took off from Elmdorf Air Force Base, which we know. They were operating under the call sign Eucla 27, and it was leaving the base for a training some to do some training and just as it left a runway a large flock of canadian geese took off from the flight line and their engines one and two they say swallowed multiple birds Mm. yeah bash yes that's some bash incident right there the flight crew grappled with physics attempting to dump fuel and maintain control below the plans stall speed i guess they're trying to like figure out how to get out of this situation so I guess they were trying to get back to the runway, but when they were doing that, they crashed into this forest on the northeast northeast of the airstrip. Mm. It was an explosion, basically. Yeah. All people died on board, including two Canadian Armed Forces personnel. It's crazy. So I tried to look up how many plane crashes happened because of... Airstrikes, bird airstrikes. Airstri- bird airstrikes, yeah. yeah. And it wasn't really clear. They're like, yeah, it's a thing, but... I did include in this a map showing, it was like showing what would be, where would be the worst areas. Mm -hmm. So it's mostly around like the coast, I guess. But I mean, a lot of, but so are a lot of airports around coast. But Mm -hmm. Canadian geese, I mean, geez. Yeah, I guess if people don't know that BASH, B-A-S-H stands for Bird Airstrike Hazard, right? Yes. So So the most, one of the most famous crashes happened in 1935 Mm. and i didn't know this you know so you know i grew up in oklahoma Mm -hmm. so i've heard of these people wiley post and will rogers oh yeah you've heard of them so wiley post was actually a famous aviator and then will rogers was like i don't know they called him a humorist like a comedian or he was in movies like did a lot of things Mm -hmm. they were flying together in a lockheed hybrid airplane when they crashed just 15 miles outside of point barrow alaska which i didn't realize that the engine had stalled just after takeoff, causing the plane to nosedive and crash into a lagoon. And they both died instantly. Mm-hmm. And it was like a big, it was a really bad time. Because 1935, it was like depression area. And they were really famous. Yeah. So everybody was pretty really upset. Sad about it. They were really sad about that one. So let's talk about some survival stories. Oh, good. Yeah. Let's bring it up. Let's, let's bring, bring it up from the sadness that is all the crashes and the craziness in Alaska. Because that's the thing. You can crash in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. But when you crash in Alaska and you survive. That's impressive. Anytime it's impressive to survive a plane crash, right? Right. But when you land in the middle of nowhere, Alaska, in the snow, you got a whole nother set of like issues. To deal with, yeah. Right. Especially if you're injured or whatnot. Mm-hmm. It's just like, that's a whole thing. So I'm going to talk about this guy. And this is from... I found this information in the Adventure Journal, and they have a lot of interesting stories about survivors of different things. Mm -hmm. This was from December 21st, 1943. 
And it's about Lieutenant Leon Crane. He was a badass. Just so you know. And this is what happened. He was a co-pilot on a B-24 Liberator or a heavy bomber. And they were on a training flight out of Ladd Air Force Base in Fairbanks. They lost an engine at 130 miles east of the base. And so the pilots like did whatever they could do. They, you know, with the controls, it's a big plane. Uh, It started spinning uncontrollably and they abandoned. So two of the crew members were able to bail out and that was Lieutenant Crane and then Major Sergeant Richard Pompeo Mm. and the rest all went down. I guess they were, they say pinned to the airframe by the force, like of the spin. Yeah. Centrifugal forces. Like one of those, uh, like, uh, like the that, Gravitron. Like that horrible ride. Yeah. yeah. He actually, should I call him Leon or Lieutenant? I'll call him Lieutenant Crane because that nice. seems more, yeah. I'm yeah. all like, and then Leon. <laughs> so, Lieutenant Crane uh, later said that as he leapt from the open Bombay doors, a parachute strapped his back. He was immediately shocked by how cold it was. Like mm. it hit his skin and it was commonly about negative 40 degrees fahrenheit in december in that part of alaska so there you go negative 40 degrees no thank you below him the plane burst into flames Mm. and it slammed into the ground and he was like floating with his parachute watching it and he saw his the other guy who got out pompeo he saw his parachute drift over a nearby ridge before he landed he just basically saw him go somewhere else Mm. far away yeah. And then he landed in snow, they say, up to his waist. And then there he was. So he called out for a while, no response. And he started pushing his way through the snow and making, you know, going towards the, the crash site. It was about a quarter of a mile away from where he landed. But, you know, have you ever tried to walk in waist deep snow? Especially after you just fell from a burning, fiery <laughs> crash of a plane. No. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I the only I think the only equivalent I've ever done that's yeah would be like thigh high like almost to my hips yeah uh, mud yeah oh that's it. yeah he was like this is I'm not doing this yeah like he probably it's hard mm-hmm. and he probably realized it's far and I've got to save my energy because obviously I'm in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. so he started he turned and headed for this small like he could see like a a stream or waterway below him which is the Charlie River and. He was hoping like, well, you know, follow the water. Yeah. Right? We well, always learn this. Julianne Cope. And he hoped uh, it would yeah. lead somewhere. For sure. He had a new down parka coat, like army issued. Hmm. And so that was good. He had his parachute. He had two matchbooks and a small knife. Um, he managed to get a fire going next to the river using, I guess, his, da- his dad had given him a letter. And he like. Oh, use it as kindling. Use it as kindling. Oh. Yeah. So, and he also found some pine and anyway, so he wrapped himself in his parachute and then he just hunkered down in December. Oh no. Yes. And because it's winter, it was 20 hours of darkness. Oh no. Oh Mm -hmm. yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Alaska. Yes. Mm -hmm. Alaska. So after a week or so of waiting close by to the crash site, because he knew he kind of could see it was where it was, but he wasn't going to try to get to it. He had no food, no shelter. He was hoping that there would be like planes. So, you know, because he was like, I got to stay close to the crash site. So I'll be found. Yeah. But there was nothing. There was no help coming. So he's like, well, then I just got to keep moving, I guess. So he started to head downstream and he was hoping, you know, to hit a town at some point. But he walked only a short distance and he found a cabin. Oh, so he went in. It was unlocked. And 
inside the cabin, there was canned food, bags of sugar, powdered milk. There was a stove for heating, cooking. There was a rifle, mittens, snowshoes, all the things. It was a fully stocked cabin. Jackpot. I mean, honestly. I feel bad that he spent a week sitting next to that river waiting. Yes. Yes. So he spent the night in the cabin. He was like, maybe somebody's going to come back. I hope they don't murder me. <laughs> Nobody showed. He just like, he's like, well, I mean, I ate. I'm here. <laughs> like he kept like waiting there and he didn't know. But it was more than 100 miles from any near any other settlement. That's how far out it was. Oh, man. So he, he just lives there now. <laughs> he's still there. He still <laughs> lives there. He decided to stay there. So for the next six weeks that he was just at the cabin for six weeks. And it's good because it was like January, right? Yeah. So he stayed there because it was so, the weather was so bad outside. That's really a conundrum. Like, do you take your chances? I would stay. If there's food and shelter and warmth, you know what I mean? Right. You just stay. Yeah. So he's like, well, I'm going to stay. There's only four hours a day where it's light outside where he could even do anything. No. He just stayed in there. He was like listening. Is there going to, am I going to hear dogs barking like a like a dog team coming down or is there going to be an aircraft? And they said that occasionally when he felt strong enough, he pushed down the frozen river, you know, with a couple of days worth of supplies. But he'd always go back to the cabin when he's gone as far as he felt like he could. Yeah. You know, so he was actually getting to the end of the food supply. So I feel sorry for whatever guy ends up out there and he's like, (laughs) what the the hell? Yeah. (laughs) So he ended up building a sled out of this wooden wash basin and he loaded it with a bunch of food and more than he had ever packed in the uh, canvas tent. And he started heading out, like sledding over this river, like yeah. on the surface of the river. He just left a bunch of IOUs. He's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, well, I'll I crashed in this BRB. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for two weeks, he went down the river, but there was just, it was nothing. I mean, he like shouted. There was just, it was just trees. Trees are like, good luck, bro. So, and twice he broke through the water. He oh, almost no. drowned. So, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he had hypothermia. Yeah. I know. It was like nearing the end of his supplies when he, Megan, found another cabin. <laughs> what? Yes. It was stocked with food. <laughs> yeah. So, later he found out that this is like the custom of like Alaska hunters and trappers. They leave food in their cabins in case stranded hikers wander into, like, wander around looking for help. They're just like I didn't know this, and I'm like that, that sounds is... that sounds like such a mis- midwestern thing to do. You know what I mean? Like right, or like a Canadian thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean it makes sense. Canada or Alaska, like that, it makes sense. You're up in that kind of like culture, I guess, like cold culture. But these, it worked. They saved him. That's insane. So he stayed there for a little bit. Got you know he rests. He was like resting, like you know, because he was probably getting pretty hypothermic by then. Yeah. And then after several more weeks of traveling, so he loaded up again. He, you know, he left, he ended up leaving the sled behind because he felt like it kept breaking through the ice. Oh, it was causing it's, him problems. Yeah. yeah. So he could, he decided to just carry his food in a single backpack. He still had that same parka. But by this point, he'd covered more than 100 miles with no map. He had no idea where he was, like where he was going. He was just like following his intuition that he would end up somewhere. And lo and behold, on March 9th, he walked out on this flat clearing and it was like he instantly recognized it as a wilderness airstrip. So he's now like, okay, here is like something. It said he pushed into the forest and out into a clearing. And then 
he found another cabin. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but this one had smoke coming out of the chimney. Oh, that's a good sign. And so, and there were, I guess there were clothes, like, hanging outside. Mm-hmm. And the man came out, looked at him, and lit a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> but he was saved. So he had arrived at the cabin of Albert Ames, who's a local hunter and who was in backcountry, had his family with him. Yeah. So he listened to Crane's like story and he was just like, this is insane. It's like, you went 100 miles. You went 100 miles, sir. And the following day, he got the, that guy Ames, he got together a dog team and he took him to this nearby other airfield and yeah. he was flown out. Like he gets it and, and Ames is like, oh, so my other two cabins don't have food now. Is that what you're saying to me? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, so. <laughs> so I guess he, Ames, the guy who found him, he led a search team back to the wreckage and they found the, the bodies of two of the crew. And they said many years later in 2006, the team returned to the wreckage, sifting through the soil to search for more remains. Mm. And they found bone fragments belonging to the pilot, uh, Second Lieutenant Harold Hoskin. Mm. And then Pompeo, the other one that went out in his parachute, yeah. they never found him. Oh, they no. never found him or his remains. He did not find a cabin. multiple cabins. Yeah. I mean, that's Man. just luck. That's, yeah, that's an insane amount of luck. But he followed the river. I mean, this is true. And maybe because he landed close enough to the river and maybe where the other guy landed, he didn't see anything. Right. So, all in all, he survived 80 days in the Alaskan, like, complete wilderness with no training, no experience, and like survival skills for that. Wow. So, yeah. But he came across these cabins. But he only spent nine days, well, he was by himself out in there for nine days before he found the first and almost two months just walking and camping, like in between it. So he did the thing for sure. That's insane. It's insane. Another one, this one's crazy too. There's this lady, um, Helen Clayben. She's a Brooklyn girl. Come on. She was she was flying into LaGuardia. <laughs> she was going to LaGuardia. LaGuardia. But she was 20 years old in 1962. She drove to Alaska with this friend she had met from a newspaper ad, which I love because 1962. That's a classified, Jen. <laughs> this is the classifieds. Hi, looking for a partner to go to Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to go see the snow? <laughs> So she spent a few months in Fairbanks and then she was like, okay, I'm ready. This is cool. It's too cool to you. (laughs) So she was going to go fly to Hong Kong and India, which I'm just like, that's so cool. Amazing. Was there Peace Corps in 1962? I think Mm -hmm. it hadn't started yet. I think 61 is when Peace Corps started. Did it? I can't remember. Oh, man, we should know that. That's embarrassing. <laughs> I, not, Don't no. judge us, you guys. <laughs> well, anyway, it's too bad she didn't just join the Peace Corps. She had to get to San Francisco, which was where she was going to catch the flight to Hong Kong. So she took a flight from Fairbanks to Whitehorse, which is the capital of the Yukon Territory. This was in early 1963. And it, they were going to go on a or she was flying on a single engine airplane piloted by this guy named Ralph Flores. He was a aircraft mechanic from California, and she was splitting costs with him. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to say it? Because I know you looked it up. Oh, I that Peace, Peace Corps started in uh, March 1st, 1961. You were right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So she could have joined the Peace Corps, but maybe, you know, she's it like... It was new. It was a new organization. Yeah. You know? They were still learning about it. Yeah. They say as a child, she was fearless and self-reliant. 
a stickball player who nurtured ambitions to see the world. But her first chance didn't come till she went to Alaska. So, and while she was there, she actually worked for the Bureau of Land Management as a drafts woman. And she took mining classes at the University of Alaska, which I was like, that's so cool. I like her. Yeah. And this is um, from an article that they interviewed her in the Saturday Evening Post. She, When she met Ralph, she said, he told her, if you don't trust me, don't go with me. She trusted him, unaware that he was not trained to fly over dangerous territory in the Yukon winter. Oh, no. I mean, Ralph. I feel like when you're asking somebody to trust you, you should provide all the information. He probably said it in a way that, like, how I say things to you, where I, like, definitely know. Like, the way I say yes. it is, like, I definitely know. And you're like, but are you sure? And I'm like, totally. And it's not. I'm and then not I don't really question sure. it. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well, you sound really sure about that. <laughs> so, actually, they were grounded for three days by snowstorms before they took off for the next leg, which was from Fort St. John, B.C. This was on February 4th. So even though the weather was still bad, they're like, it'll be, let's just, we're tired of waiting. Let's go. Yeah. He's like, I think I can do this. It says flying for for hours through blinding snow and harsh winds. (laughs) Ralph tried to find his bearings by taking the plane above the clouds. And when he descended, he was hoping to follow landmarks Mm -hmm. or a path of the Alaska highway to reach Fort St. John. But Ralph, inexperienced as he was, didn't know how to fly using only the aircraft's instruments. An essential skill in poor weather conditions. You you need to know those things. Oh, bless his heart. He did not bring adequate food or basic survival ge- no, gear Ralph. in his, yeah, like an axe or sleeping bags or a rifle, which most people would bring. Yes. And they, this is in a quote, a few months after the crash, his pilot's license was suspended for a year by the the (laughs) FAA. Helen later said, I knew he didn't know where he was and he wouldn't say we were lost, but I knew we were. (laughs) (laughs) We were flying by a mountain and I saw trees right below us and I knew we were going to crash. Ralph also recalled, I said out loud, okay, Helen, (laughs) here it comes. (laughs) I saw the right wingtip hit the trees and I just closed my eyes. The plane crashed into a desolate forest of a mountainside in the Yukon-British Columbia border. Oh, so I'm not I'm not trying to say because I'm not a pilot, right? Yeah. I'm not trying to say no anything, judgment, no judgment, no, no judgment. No. But I feel like I would being the person who's like semi in control of something happening. Uh-huh. I mean, not very much if you're crashing already, but I don't think I would close my eyes. I think I would keep them open just in case, <laughs> just, just in case there's something I can do, you know? Yeah. I would have just been like, oh, yeah, this is it. It yeah. just crashed. Yeah. That would have been it. A- unless you're unless you're bracing for impact. That's the only thing I can think of. But I just love how he's like, all right, Helen, just closes his eyes. He's like, just, I just, I saw happening. the, I saw the wing hit that one. I just closed my eyes. <laughs> like, he just put his hands up. Like, uh, uh, but. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, they both survived. I, you know, that's the only reason why I'm making that joke. <laughs> yes. She had a broken, her left arm was broken. Oh, I don't know no. where on her arm. And yeah. she had crushed her foot. Like, and it was crushed. Like bones, oh. like a bone sticking out. It was real messed up. Yeah. Ralph had a fractured jaw and he had broken a few ribs. Oh, no, Ralph. Yes. So, yeah, it was not bad. They, after they landed, kind of assessed the injuries. They were like, let's just stay huddled inside the cabin of the plane. Yeah. And he built basically like kind of like a tent around it. Oh, that's smart. They, it was like, again, waist deep snow. Temperatures were 48 degrees below zero. They, neither one of them had survival training, but 
I mean, you know, they may do. He wrapped Helen's injured foot in her sweaters and covered the openings of the cabin with, I never know this word, tarpaulins? Oh, just like tarps. Why do they say? Just say tarps. Okay. Because it's like, it was like old timey, you know? Okay. I mean, not that old timey, but like. Yeah. Tarpaulins. Tarpaulins. Well, tarps. Um, And then tried, I guess, unsuccessfully to fix the radio and send out a distress signal. Mm. They also built some rabbit traps, which always makes me think of the show alone. Oh, yeah. When they go out and they put out their snares. Yeah. And they're just We're so. We're going to go set some snares. They start out so confident. They do. And then it just goes downhill. And you can tell people who are like really good at setting them because uh-huh. they catch things. Uh-huh. But then people who are really bad at yeah. setting them just never, never, they catch, never quite. And they did just get so hungry and sad. Yeah. And they're like, I just really miss my wife. <laughs> they just, and they just make the call. Anyway. They had no phone to make that call. <laughs> they just, they were just doing the thing. Mm-hmm. They had very little food. He, I guess he only had a few cans of sardines, which. Well, got to be into sardines then. I hope. Yeah. And I'm not. I would have been like, damn it. There was some tuna fish, some fruit salad, and a box of saltine crackers. Ooh, actually, all of that sounds, sounds pretty good. No lie. Yeah. That's like a little canapes. You can make little canapes of the tuna. Yeah. On the little crackers. And then you got the fruit salad for a little sweet something afterwards. So they rationed it the best they could, but it was gone in 10 days. That's pretty good, honestly. They drank water. Some of it was filtered through the shred of one of her dresses and boiled in an empty oil can. They ate bits of toothpaste. They had Mm. squeezed from this tube they found. And that was it. What would be in toothpaste that would be beneficial? She, she pretty much said that, and I think I'll say it later, but she pretty much was like, it just made your breath taste different. It just gave it you a different you feel taste. Better. Yeah. 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 Um, she said, we pretended to melt, pretended, because they drank melted snow. Yeah. they. I think they boiled it though. Yeah. But they yeah. said, we pretended that the melted snow was soup. <laughs> Some days it would be tomato, then beef, and then other varieties I to love, pass the time. <laughs> yeah, I love when people are in survival stories. I I love when they make like up a whole other world in their. I get it. Yeah, that like you cannot. We we've talked about it so many times. Like people who don't make it, sometimes they they just can't. They, they can't. Yeah, make the up reality that world. is too much. Yeah. yeah. So to pass time, they read books, including a book of poems by Robert Service, which I'm not sure who that is. Mm-hmm. She also said she read the Bible in like the first three days or two days. She's like, I read the Bible in like two days and it's a long book. <laughs> <laughs> I guess Ralph tried to convert Helen from she's Jewish. Oh, no. And, and try to convert her to like Mormon, Mormon faith. And it didn't work. She's like, yeah, nice try. That's amazing. She's like, ain't have, you know, like however long we're out here, it's not happening. <laughs> and some at some point, Ralph left for eight days and he's trying to walk. He made snowshoes from tree branches and wire. And he okay. was trying to find a clearing in the woods so that they could be seen better. Yeah. So he found a spot that was about three quarters of a mile away mm-hmm. where he thought that would be a good spot. Because okay. he basically he just wanted them to be seen. Yeah. So that was day 42 day 42 oh. they set out for that spot put they made this makeshift sled and put her and all the belongings and dragged them over to that spot day 42 day 42 10 days in their food supply that they had is gone gone yes what yes a few days later he left again and he found this frozen pond and he's he etched like an enormous like sos sign oh wow with an arrow that was pointing to their campsite. 
hoping that somebody would fly over and see them. And on March 24th, there was a pilot flying supplies to a nearby trapper's cabin. Yay! Oh, <laughs> trapper's cabin. Yeah, stocking it up. Too bad they didn't find the cabin. And he saw the big SOS. And then soon he saw Helen at the campsite and Ralph was like waving his arms. <laughs> and he had a mirror. He was signaling with a mirror as well. Well, Ralph had some skills. He so, might not have had that flying and bad weather skill. Totally. But he like, yeah, no. And one job, thing Ralph. to say about them is, you know, they were rescued, mm-hmm. obviously, because they survived. They were rescued separately. They said Helen was carried three miles to safety the next day on the back of Charles Hamilton. So that's the pilot that spotted her. Oh, okay, okay. So he carried her all this way till he could get to a place where he could land, right? Because he had to yeah. land and then hike out and then carry her back. Like piggyback style. Yeah, because the snow was three to five feet deep. Jeez. Right? And he said, the pilot, this Mr. Hamilton said that, I must have fallen 40 to 50 times. I had to fall on my face because I couldn't fall on her. Oh, no. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. So one thing is her foot had already started to get gangrene. I mean, mm-hmm. it was getting, and she hadn't eaten. She was losing seven pounds a week. Jeez. She started out at 140 some pounds and she was already down to like 90, getting yeah. to the 80s. Like it was real bad. Like time was of the essence here. So it was so lucky they were found. Yeah. They said her broken arm had already healed by the time she was rescued. But I think it didn't heal right. I was going to say it just like healed in place in whatever place it was in. Yeah. But, oh. Probably they had to break it and reset it. I ke- I forgot. I forgot that her arm was broken while you were mm-hmm. telling this story. She's like, wow. A crushed foot and a broken arm just hanging out. So they said malnutrition and frostbite. Um, She was treated for those two things at a hospital in Whitehorse. Uh, There was also like a ton of reporters because they just were like, they're dead. Yeah. Yeah. When she returned to New York City, it was about a week after being rescued. Her toes on her right foot were amputated because Mm -hmm. they were so frostbitten. And then she started writing a book. And it's called <laughs> 1964, Hey, I'm Alive. And like she said it. she named it that because that's something she, it was like her mantra in her head. Like of all the things like pain, oh, yeah. hunger, just everything. She was like, well, hey, I'm alive. It's all good. Yeah. I guess if you could do it in a Brooklyn way. <laughs> hey, I'm even... alive. <laughs> what well, do you want? I'm alive. <laughs> Uh, hey i'm alive here (laughs) (laughs) so good i guess later in her life she got married had kids she ended up teaching survival skills to girl scouts oh i love it schools and other groups and her and ralph stayed friends oh that's good all those years and he was like i think she was like what 20 21 and Mm -hmm. he was in his 40s he passed away in 1997 but they were friends all the way to the end yeah she said those weeks gave me an opportunity to meet myself, she told People Magazine in an interview. Said most people expect that they would not be able to cope with a crisis, and it was a great experience to find out that I could. So she actually died in 2018 mm-hmm. in her home in Palo Alto. She was 76. Oh, Yeah. Anyway, cool lady. Cool story. I have one more story. Yes. This one, I pulled most of the information uh, from the BBC. <laughs> Although it happened in Alaska, this was, and this is a really, there's a lot of articles about this story because there was a famous senator who died in this crash. Mm. But this is from the perspective of one of the survivors, and it's called The Boy Who Survived a Plane Crash in Alaska. Here we go. On August 9th, 2010, there was a group of people, there were nine people on a plane, but there was a group including William or Bill Phillips. 
and his son, which was 13-year-old Willie Phillips Jr., who is kind of who I'm going to quote that they're talking about in the story. Mm. Also, former U.S. Senator Ted Stevens, who was 86. They were heading with some other folks to this private fishing lodge in the Dillingham region. Bill had previously worked for Senator Stevens, so that's how he knew him. Um, And Senator Stevens was a representative for Alaska, Republican, for more than 40 years. And he was known by many as Uncle Ted. Anyway, but by this time, he's he's not a senator anymore. There was some some controversies with him. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. The name sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's pretty well known. Yeah. Also on board was Sean O'Keefe, who was the former head of NASA and the North American chief executive of the European Defense Contract, or EADS. I guess. And his teenage son, Kevin. Dang. Yeah. This plane was owned by GCI, which is a telecom company and out of Anchorage, I believe. So Dana Tyndall, she is like a CEO for GCI and her 16-year-old daughter, Corey. There was also the pilot. His name was Terry Smith. He was 62. And this other guy, Jim Morehard of Alexandria, Virginia. I'm thinking just another friend probably that they brought with them. The weather, they said, was rainy and foggy. And so they were planning this fishing trip, but they said the likelihood of them getting out was not very high because of the weather. But after an hour or so, and this is from Willie and his, as he's remembering and explaining it to the BBC, after an hour or so, we finally got the heads up that we'd be able to make it out. So that was pretty exciting. And everybody was running around and getting their things together. Remember, he's 13. Mm. And there's like a 16-year-old on the plane. I mean, you know, there's other kids and some adults. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a really, as a 13-year-old, I'd be like, this is so cool. Like, right. I'm so excited to do this. The plane was Havilland Canada DHC-3 Otter. This, so it's an amphibious float plane. Oh, mm-hmm. that's cool. Yeah. And I will tell you the rest of this from the perspective from that really he said that he had been on um that plane before and he kind of knew how it worked but this time for some reason he didn't put his seatbelt on did not he was just like i'm not gonna put it he didn't think about it maybe i don't know he it doesn't really say why if he was just like being a teenager or being a teenage boy that just doesn't think about things and nobody noticed he wasn't wearing it because he was just goofing around or he was trying to look cool or he was trying to be cool yeah. He said, I was sitting on the window seat and I was dozing in and out of the reality, like he's just getting sleepy. Yeah. He said, one of the last things I remember before the accident was there was a bunch of rain on the window. And I remember sitting there and there was this big drop of water that was snaking its way along the window. And right when it got to the bottom, I fell asleep. I'm like, okay. That's that's a very calming. Yeah. Super that's calming. Nice. Yeah. At around 2.30 p.m., the plane crashed into the side of a mountain. So the weather was bad. Visibility was poor. But the exact reasons for the crash are still unclear. And I it, I did look it up and to the, they did everything. They still couldn't figure out why it crashed. They thought that maybe the pilot, because he had suffered from a stroke before, that maybe oh, he had maybe a seizure happened. or he passed out or something happened. Yeah. Yeah. Because there was really no, they couldn't find anything wrong with the plane itself. Right. This crash happened. It was about 17 miles north of Dillingham. Willie said... He thought it was a dream. He says, I was sitting there for probably an hour or so. Every five minutes, I would try to fall back asleep and then I'd wake up and I would think, wake up and then I'd think, okay, maybe I'll try again. And then I would close my eyes and then open them up again. And I'm still in this place. So obviously he's like concussed. He's like confused. Eventually he realized he needed to move, right? He said, I wasn't in my seat. 
Had I actually been wearing my seatbelt, I could have been in a much worse situation. Because I ended up being in the cockpit of the plane, I sustained most of my injuries making impact with the front of the plane when we'd come into contact with the mountain. So I guess because he was able to... He got projected to the Projected, yes. Yeah. Right in front of me were a few broken bushes and glass everywhere. I ended up pretty much sitting on the lap of the person who'd been in the co-pilot seat for the duration of the flight. Oh, no. Yeah. I was looking at a 50% gradient on the mountain. That's scary. There were nine passengers, like I said, and crew on the plane. So five lost their lives that day. The victims were the pilot, Terry Smith, his dad, Bill Phillips Sr., Mm. uh, Dana Tyndall, and her daughter, her 16-year-old daughter, Corey. They all didn't make it. He said, you kind of assume the worst at this point. I heard some rustling around and some voices. So I definitely had some hope that I could be going to an area full of people. I went around to one side of the plane, right down the side of the mountain, and kind of made my way to a spot where I was originally sitting. And it was actually quite morbid. It was just a group of lifeless people and then other people who were just scattered among them who were alive at this point. Willie says what he learned from his father was key in keeping him calm. He had a role in keeping my head level. He says, for my entire life, he taught me, taught my brothers and I that by getting overly frustrated or anxious in a moment doesn't help the resolution. I feel like we tell our kids that all the time. All the time. Yeah. Uh, it, doesn't, it seems to not like get through though. But I mean, he's in a Eventually very, it does. And he's yeah. 13, but. Yeah. And he's yeah. also in an extreme situation. Extreme. My first instinct was to be the calmest there. I didn't really see another option. It didn't feel right to talk about how bad of a situation we were in, mm-hmm. that it didn't seem to be helpful to anyone. Willie saw one of his father's best friends who had survived. He was one of the first people to bring me down to earth a little bit. He was like, Willie, we're going to need your help. But do you know that your father is dead? She said that to him. Oh, my gosh. I guess. I don't know. Maybe he just. I, when I read that, I was like, he said Wanted that. Wanted him to know or. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I would. I feel like I would be the kind of person to just like, n- let's not talk about that. Yeah. Like, let's focus on what we need to get I done. I guess he just then... wanted to see if he if he was like. Did he know? Aware. He right. was okay. Like, he realized, okay, we've got to do stuff. Are you aware of this situation? Right. I don't know. He said, but I knew right, right then was not the time to have this moment of breakdown. It was something I was told then, but not something I came to terms with until we got out of there. Mm. Okay. As soon as it was reported that the aircraft hadn't landed as scheduled, other pilots started to search. So that's good. But Willie says that the authorities assumed that the plane had crashed and everybody on board had died. So nobody was like pushing forward with a rescue operation. Right. They were like, this is a recovery. Yes. Yeah. So because the weather was bad, they're like, well, what's the chance? I, I kind of feel like they should never assume. This is my only thought about this is that there are so many frequent crashes. There have been enough crashes. Yeah. And the percentage of survivors in those crashes have been like a certain level, right? Because of the hazardous conditions, it's kind of probably the first thing they're going to jump to is recovery. Yeah. And that if people survive, it is one of those like kind of wow situations, you know? Right. Right. But I get what you're saying. Like, you would hope if it were me in that plane that crashed, I would hope, you know what, Jen, if you ever are in a plane crash or I am ever, I will hold out hope. Thank you. And I will push people for a rescue operation. I appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate that so much. No problem. Right. But like he said, it didn't make sense to rescue bodies and risk other people's, the rescuers' lives to try to get out there when it was bad weather. But they did find the plane around 6.30 
p.m. on a 40 degree slope. So but they saw it that same day. Yeah, because they were oh, searching, wow. but they didn't not on foot. They were just flying around yeah. and looking. He said he could hear a very faint fluttering of a helicopter somewhere in the distance. So he came out of the the plane's fuselage. He said he had a white sweatshirt on and he started like waving it around. And that's when it turned from recovery to, to rescue. rescue. Yeah. Recovery the next morning to rescue now immediately. <laughs> yeah. So within a half an hour of his w- sweatshirt being spotted, I'm like, thank God you were wearing a white sweatshirt. But aren't they on snow? Like I, I don't know. No, oh, when you look at it, it wasn't, it wasn't snow. Snowy. It was just rainy and oh, foggy, okay, okay. but there's no snow on the oh, ground. Oh, thank God. Yeah. Yeah, because this was in... Sorry, I have to go back. It was more... It's, yeah, you said it was What like was a, the... It was in August. Right, yeah. Yeah, so oh, it was... I included a picture of the plane, so you can kind of mm. see that it's it's all still green. Visible. yeah. Within a half an hour of them seeing it, their rescue teams were on the ground. There was a doctor and local responders, and they all them were they were all airlifted. The weather conditions were still getting worse, so it got really treacherous mm. to get out that night. So a lot of the full scale rescue didn't start until the next morning. So he had multiple injuries on his left side. He had a broken ankle, and he had to have thirteen surgeries on it. That sucks. He had injuries to his shoulder, wrist, and nose. And he said, it's been a long process. So this was like, a lot of people heard about this in 2010 because of Senator Ted Stevens. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, that that was a big deal. But for Willie and his family, it was it was hard. It compl- He said it complicated things when there would be reporters showing up at the end of our driveway or coming and knocking on our front door. Uh, and at the time, his, you know, anytime his mom wanted to go to the grocery store, somebody would buy. And her husband just passed away and her son is yeah. traumatized and recovering. In this article, it had been nine years. Mm-hmm. So 2019. And he was quoted as saying, it's one of those things that had to happen to somebody. It happened to me. It was obviously an unfortunate thing, but exposed me to so many finer idiosyncrasies of my life that I don't think I would have ever had an appreciation for in the same way. Mm. Every day when I wake up, I think this is so infinitely better to waking up on the other side of that mountain. So today is probably going to be a pretty good day. That's nice. That's a really like super positive outlook. Very positive. Here's the crazy part. Mm-hmm. That former senator, mm-hmm. Ted Stevens, this was not his first plane crash in Alaska. What? Yeah. He was one of two survivors in a 1978 plane crash in at Anchorage International Airport. Five people were killed in that crash, including his first wife. Oh, no. Yeah. And before that 1978 crash, the New York Times reported that he had said that he had had a premonition he would die in a plane crash. What? Yeah. Wait, did he die in this one that you just talked about? Yeah. He was one oh, of the Oh, I missed that, died. that. Oh. He was one of the oh, no. five that died. Oh. Yeah. Creepy. And what's, yeah. So, but before the 1978 one, he had had a premonition and that then he, he didn't die, but his wife died. And then later, all those years later in 2010. He was in another crash. Yes. Yeah. Oh, ugh. it's weird. Um, so, Megan, let's talk about. This is very airline focused, but is it possible to survive a plane crash? Yes, we know this because you can drop six miles from the sky and still live. True that. But let's just read some. I really liked this article I found about how to survive a plane crash. Okay. Okay? But it says the odds of being killed on a single airline flight are one in 4.7 million. It's still not good odds. (laughs) It's not really bad odds. So I guess crash fatalities right now, though, are at an all time low. Just remember, like, 
It's way, way, way not going to happen. Okay. I, I feel like you're saying it that way because you know. I know. You know that I do not like flying. Listen, according like to the European Transport Safety Council, plane mm-hmm. crashes technically have a 90% survivability rate. That's 90%. Who's the other 10% though, Jen? I'm still 10%. Listen, there's a lot of new <laughs> aircraft design and mm-hmm. they, you know, with better exits. Um, anyway, they're trying to basically, they allow, they want you to get out in 90 seconds. So here's the things you need to do. And it's funny because I made this list and it doesn't do this in the article, but I put like an exclamation point after each one. I love it. Leave your carry-on bags on the plane. Exclamation point. I get it. Leave it. Yeah. Don't try to get your phone or your stuff. It doesn't matter. Just leave it and get the hell out of there quickly. Okay? Mm -hmm. Are you looking at me like, do you disagree? No, I don't disagree. I mean, no. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> Where is the safest place to sit on an airplane, Megan? I I have looked that up before and I'm sure I do you have. I, yeah, I do know that it is no good to sit in the front of the plane. It it's also no good to sit over the wings, right? Isn't it like there's it's like basically like the back half it's like after the wings back half it's where no one wants to sit nobody wants to sit there that's, that's the, the safest place plate be- yeah. behind the wings behind the wings yeah ding, ding, ding. i Good really job. hate when i have no other option than to sit on the wings because i, I, I feel like that's a place where it's going to break in half for sure and we always love to sit in first class we're like look at us in first class so we're nice. getting free wine <laughs> just gonna die that sounds like we go in first class. we don't go in first class a lot you guys you know we don't it was just like it just happened Listen, to happen when you that way. fly <laughs> the distance we have to fly you get a lot of miles you get a lot of miles you can yeah. bump yourself it's amazing it's kind of amazing but a Thanks, popular mechanic study of 20 commercial jet crashes with both fatalities and survivors found that passengers seated in the rear cabin behind the wings had a 69 percent chance of survival compared with just 49 percent of those in first class mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah you have to sacrifice your leg room for survival all right. What's the what is the best way to sit in your seat? Best way to sit in your seat, like when you're crashing. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely, like you should. Your seat should be upright, and you should be folded over with your arms around your knees, like wow, legs. She really read the thing. I actually read every single pamphlet when I get on. I read <laughs> all of them. Okay, I immediately fall asleep. I love it. Brace yourself. It Brace. says, yeah. In a 2015 crash simulation. Boeing found that passengers who both wore their seatbelts and assumed yes. the brace position, which is feet flat, yes. head cradled against their knees or in the seat in front of the in front of them, if possible, or likeliest to survive a crash. Yeah. So if you can't bend your whole body over, so your head is kind of between your knees, you like put your head on the seat in front of you and your arm kind of like up to like brace yourself. And which I think if you have a baby on your lap, that's the that's the way you also hold. Yeah, like the baby. Yeah, they say that people who wore their seatbelt but did not put their head down, like brace, they suffered severe, uh, severe head injuries. Yes, and those with no seatbelts, like were just like, and then we my seatbelt, they died on impact. Yeah, I always strap that seatbelt in. Yeah. Anyway, first thing you should do if there's a problem, you should know this because you. Um, read the things scream <laughs> after you're done screaming uh is this like we've landed on the ground no your things are going bad you just realized oh things are going bad it's uh-huh. about to happen uh-huh. well i mean are we talking about oxygen masks put on your oxygen down? yes because yeah. they Do say yourself that first yes then the person yeah during because when you lose cabin pressure which we yeah. know because remember the guy who passed out and fell yes. like our however many yeah. miles yes yeah, so it will basically knock you unconscious in mm-hmm. as little as 20 seconds yes you have to be quick yeah, you had to be really fast and you can't help anybody else around you until yours is on yes. because you could pass out. 
And I think that's actually a good life in general, like a life Mm -hmm. hack, if you will, like always... You know what I mean? Like your metaphorical face uh, oxygen mask. You yes. put it on first, like for everything. You should for do everything. for everything. Make sure you're okay so you can better help others. Yes. I love that. Agreed. We just talked about what we wear on the plane. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I just want to say that we are doing the right thing. Thank you. You don't need to wear flammable, sexy stuff. Okay? <laughs> you want to be as non-flammable as possible. Cotton. Yes. You want like natural materials, cotton or wool. Mm-hmm. Sweatpants. Do it. It's also like long pants, long sleeve shirts. Mm-hmm. It's very nice. It protects you from, you know, sharp things and all know, the things. flames. Yeah. Yeah. Shoes. Now, I do like to take off my shoes <laughs> on a plane, <laughs> but you shouldn't do that. You need to wear comfortable, like flat shoes or, or sneakers. Yes. No heels. No Come heels. on. No Don't heels. do the heels. Let's not do heels. Let's not do uh, slippers like yeah. flip-flops because they'll just fly off and then you're you don't have shoes. Yeah. I did for a period of time only wear slippers because I was like, oh, I'll get through TSA faster. But then I found that I was really uncomfortable on the plane in slippers. Well, I just get my feet get cold. Yeah. So a lot of times I'll just like put on like thick socks. Yeah. Like regardless, even if I have socks, I put on thicker ones that have like the thing on the bottom so you can yeah. like the cruise grippies. around. Yeah. <laughs> Except you should never go in the bathroom. In no, 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 no. Always put your shoes on. Always that, well, so I get on. the free, you get the slippers. Oh, that's right. Ooh, Those that's white amazing. like <laughs> slippers they give you. Like Japanese style mm-hmm. house slippers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. My organization. Good job, by the way. Thank you. I can tell you've read your safety manuals. You I hundred percent. I also A plus plus. Whenever we're like taking off in any kind of flight I've ever been on, I always always like to really look at the stewardess or like the flight attendants when they're like doing all of the things. You know, like uh-huh. if, if if it's not a video, like a lot of flights now just have a video and you just like watch it. Right. I still watch the video. Right. Okay. Uh, but if it's like a small plane and there's like the you know. Like Detroit <laughs> ladies are just like up there, like with their seatbelts and stuff. I try to really look at them while they're doing it, just to let them know that like somebody's listening. You're like, I'm listening over here. I've got you. Listen, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like they appreciate it on some. I level. think so. I think so. I'm sure it's annoying when nobody's paying any attention, and you're like, fine. They're when just, everything goes, if anything <laughs> happens, it's your own fault. I'll blame yourselves. Yeah, there's just everybody looking at their phones. And let me just say that I was right before we started recording, I saw on Instagram, Mm -hmm. there was like a post about a lady who tried to open the door at 37,000 feet because she said Jesus told her to do it. (sighs) And that when people tried to tackle her, she bit into somebody's thigh. They had to go to the hospital. So that is awful. Awful. I'm just saying. Yeah. Planes, you guys. I know. Can we put together some, can we start getting research on like faster boats? (laughs) <laughs> faster big boats you know well, can like, we just get to like safer. star trek level where we just like beam each other we just beam, beam. Me up, scotty we yeah just beam wherever we need to go portals yes my son's already reached that stage in life where he's like mom can't we just have portals to go everywhere i mean i get it yeah anyway a lot easier the organization to support let's hear it earlier i brought up it was kind of a quick quote from the president of this the ketchikan volunteer rescue squad mm-hmm. and they're so cool so they were established in 1950 oh yeah and it was in response to a crash that was near their airport a pan am airways crash near the airport on annette island at the time of the Annette Island crash, Ketchikan was uh, had no organized search and rescue capabilities, with the exception of the U.S. Coast Guard. 
And so this volunteer rescue squad was founded by members of the community to serve the community of Ketchikan, mostly. Um, And since that time, our volunteers have donated thousands of hours to search and rescue operations in the Ketchikan area. In fact, our most important asset comes from the form of our volunteers, those people who are willing to leave their homes or work, sometimes in the middle of the night, to help out. These people are what the rescue squad is all about, and we are very proud of them. They've done a lot. There's, I mean, there are a lot of, I, there's a picture um, I included. It's fairly recent of um, a crashed float plane. It's like upside down. Looks like they had a midair collision. Mm. So it's just, a, it's just a lot happening out there. I don't, you know, I hope that there can be more funding that goes into, I couldn't find an organization that would like, like help weather service, get yeah. the get some funds over so people can get the equipment that they need mm-hmm. because it sounds so big right because they also need to have them on the ground yeah so it's like a lot of infrastructure there's a lot that needs to happen yeah. to make it more safe and i by no means am saying that it's like you shouldn't fly in alaska or that it's not safe but at the same time <laughs> like know the risks know the risks know how to sit in the event of an emergency right and maybe don't be in a hurry if the weather's bad, just... There's always another day. Yeah. Just maybe relax. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. So, I... And also because my my friend that was uh, working at the Wildlife yes. Refuge lived there. So, I, I like to use Ketchikan as one of our organizations to support. That's very cool. I like yeah. that a lot. So, Megan. Yes, Jen. Here we are. We're talking about flights again. Flights. I mean, a little bit different this time. A little different. Because, yeah. Because if you, if you survive a crash, which actually a lot of people survive out there. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't, but there's yeah, a lot, quite a yeah. few people that do. You would hope that you would get rescued pretty quickly, which is why these guys are great. For sure. But at the same time, you need to have some survival skills. Yes, I agree with that 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been thinking about what are the things that I would want in my emergency preparedness kit. And I know that we uh, sometimes go beyond, you know, things that can actually fit in the kit. We do a uh, lot. Like physically, like you could not carry it with you. Basically, there is no sled large yeah. enough to carry our emergency preparedness kit. No, for sure. You need like Santa's sled because it's magical. We do. We need a magical sled. Yeah. But yeah. what what I really, the, the story that really stood out to me was that guy that he was an airman, right? Uh-huh. I forget. I'm so sorry. I forgot his name already. Leon Crane. Yes. Leon Crane. Okay. That's right. Leon Crane getting those cabins. Those oh, yeah. lucky cabins. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to say that the thing I want in my emergency preparedness kit in the event that I crash in Alaska in a plane <laughs> is some like perfectly situated stocked cabins yes because that that was kind of amazing that he ran into three of them yeah well he was just in the right place by some miracle right place at the right time yeah yeah but yeah that's what i think that's what i think i'm gonna what i'm gonna have all right Mm -hmm. a perfectly stocked perfectly placed fully stocked yes okay Got it. Cabin in the woods. <laughs> Which can also, it sounds really creepy. It does. But also, it <laughs> no lie, kind of sounds like a magical place that I would never want to leave. You're like, I'm good. Like if there were some way that just the food would just stay there. Right. You know, it would just keep resupplying. Just, yeah. Then yeah. T- I would just be like, cool, this is great. <laughs> well, I mean, to get through December, January. For sure. Time frame is Gotta essential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. It makes me think of, it kind of made me think of the Arctic uh, or Antarctic. Uh, when they would set up those um, camps or yes, like little stops along the way. Along the so way. there was like mm-hmm. a group that went all the way to wherever point they wanted to put their flag. Yeah. I was here. We own this. And then the other guys would, there would be other ones that would be kind of behind them. Like runners. And then runners that would go yeah. back and like stock. I remember one of the stories points. that you told, it was like they got there and there was a pineapple or something. And they were so happy. And they were like, wow, fine. <laughs> so random. But they were so happy yeah, about it yeah. just to have some fruit. So good. I think there was more than a pineapple, but I think the pineapple was like the highlight, the cherry on top. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you for that story, Jen. That was a lot of fun. Story. Yeah. Multiple stories. I guess uh, with that, it's the holiday season. Lots of cupcake paper to eat. <laughs> I hope everybody enjoys. And yeah. we'll be back next week with uh, an episode around Christmas. Yes. A Christmas episode, if you will. And we'll also have a December uh, Patreon yeah. episode, which is also going to be Christmas related. Sort Kind of, sort of. Holiday season. Do, 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 do. <laughs> You're Gonna Die Out There is produced by us, Jen and Megan, and edited by Jonathan Pillsbury. We'd love it if you could leave us a five-star iTunes review on Apple Podcasts. You can also support us by following us on Instagram or Twitter listening and subscribing wherever you get podcasts or becoming a patron. Check out more on our website at you'regonnadieoutthere.com where you can see our awesome eco-friendly sponsors and Nature Nerd Artisans page. If you'd like to send us your own stories or episode ideas, you can submit them through our contact form on our website or to our email, you'regonnadieoutthere at gmail.com. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. Bye. Did you see the news about that woman who disappeared in Hawaii? You sent like it to me. On vacation. That's right. Did you read the whole thing? Did you like go and like that? Her husband said they were fighting off a shark and he got away and then she was just like gone. She got, quote, bit by a shark. Okay. Uh-huh. And he got away. He uh-huh. was like, oh, we were like, you know, we're fighting it off. We swim to shore. And it was like they were, uh, he said something like a mile out. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, they found. What were they doing? Just... They found like a bathing suit and some goggles like a snorkel and he's like those are hers yeah a mile out yeah Mm. it's super super fishy no 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 pun intended intended. how would you be able to snorkel a mile out because there's nothing to see at that point i could be really wrong at the mile out thing but i mean they could be diving they could be i don't think they were diving they were like they were snorkeling it was like but I mean, just the reef out. doesn't, I don't know. Maybe there's No, no, no. Some... I'm just, I'm saying the mile out might be wrong. They were, but like. Oh, but they were pretty far out. They were pretty far out. Far enough that nobody heard them in the middle of the day at like a popular beach. Ooh. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, this is her bathing suit and her snorkel, mm-hmm. but like no body parts, you know? Well. I don't know. I think you might. Yeah, I'm just saying like. <laughs> I always feel kind of bad for people who didn't do it. Yeah. And then they just get blamed. And it just happened that way? Their entire life. It's just really fishy. I keep saying it. Uh, But no, it's just really weird because he came back and was Uh like, my wife, she died. You know, she's like out there. I don't know. Yeah. And they always judge people's reactions to things. Yeah. But that's also not fair. Because some people are just weird. This is true. Super weird. I mean, I don't know how. They just react differently. I don't know how I would react if I were swimming with somebody and a shark came and bit them. Like, would I stay with them? Like, if it was my husband. Mm Mm-hmm. I would be 
hysterical. Yeah. And trying to, yeah, kill Freaking the fit, kill the shark. <laughs> I don't know what I would be doing, but it would be, it would not be a good scene. It would not be good for the shark. But also my husband would never take me out there like that. Right. Because he like, he's like, no, that's not safe. <laughs> not a good idea. Yep. All he right. wouldn't do it. Weird. I once was walking out of my house when Damien was a baby. I was holding him mm-hmm. and I, I it was dark outside, like the light wasn't working or something. I had to walk down three stairs. They're really short stairs. And I fell and I turned so, you know, he wouldn't fall into the ground. And I landed so hard, on like my shoulder blade, because uh-huh. it was like right onto bricks. Anyway, oh my that's God. what I made me think of. That just that, that guy terrible. Hamilton like carrying her through the snow, just <laughs> falling, falling on his face. So sad. <clears throat> I get it though. Yes, I get it. Jen, did you see on our Instagram that we got a couple messages? I mean, we get a we get a couple messages every day now, which yeah, I love. We love it. Uh, but we specifically got a couple messages referring to something that made me so happy. Oh, are these the messages that there's like? <laughs> I didn't realize how many of you are out there. <laughs> yes. So I got uh, we got a message from Shannon and then also from Matt. <laughs> and I just want to say, Shannon and Matt, we are going to start our cupcake paper eating support group. <laughs> cupcake paper eaters unite. I mean, I'm not even going to lie. When I saw those messages, I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> like, it's, like it's, and I was looking at it like, really? What? <laughs> What's happening? And I was like, see, it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's why they listen to us. Yeah. You guys some, are the best. They can thank relate. you so much. <laughs> that, made my, that made my day, that for sure. That was so funny. For sure. 